Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, looking forward to hearing what you have to say about some of these topics. Do you want to start off by introducing yourself to the listeners? Sure, and thank you for having me on. So relevant to this podcast, I've got an undergrad and a master's degree in sport and exercise science from Loughborough University in the UK. And during that time, I worked as a sprint coach, did some strength conditioning work to also did a little bit of person training to earn a bit of money and worked as a sports massage therapist a few hours each week. And between those degrees, I did an internship at the rugby football union in the sports medicine department. And then after my master's degree, I ended up at the University of Leeds, where I did a PhD, which focused on the intersection between sleep, biological rhythms, nutrition and metabolism. And finished that in 2018. And for the last couple of years, I've primarily been working as a consultant to help people feel and perform better. But I'm also the co-founder and chief science officer of Resilient Nutrition. And our goal is to make feeling and performing better, practical and convenient and tasty. So I guess we'll just dive right into it. So for starters, can you give us a bit of a rundown of what chronobiology is and how that pertains to things like nutrition and athleticism and injury and things like that? Just a very broad overview. Yeah. Chronobiology is the study of time in organisms. And what I mean by that is that if you think about the history of our species, for example, then we evolved in the presence of relatively predictable changes in the environment, most obvious of which is the light-dark cycle each day. And it would have been adaptive for our ancestors to anticipate these cycles so that they could optimize their biology according to time of day. And over time, in response to these changes, organisms evolved these biological rhythms. And these biological rhythms are generated by so-called biological clocks. And they lead to daily changes in all sorts of different things, the most obvious of which is the sleep-wake cycle. But relevant to athletic performance, they program our bodies for physical activity during the daytime. And... I know you're a powerlifter, and if we look specifically at strength training performance, then strength training performance tends to track core body temperature. And there's a very clear circadian rhythm in core body temperature, such that it tends to peak in the late biological afternoon. And I say biological afternoon because some of us are so-called early birds or morning larks, and others are evening types or night owls. And what that means is that my biological afternoon as an early bird might be at 4 p.m., whereas for a night owl, it might be at 9 p.m. But the point is that if we can optimize certain aspects of our lifestyle, such as the times at which we train and the times at which we eat, then we can align our lifestyle with our biological rhythms and thereby improve how we respond to that exercise and that nutrition respectively. And I mentioned that strength tends to track core body temperature. If you look at your maximal force production, for example, at the time at which your core body temperature is at its highest, then you'll typically find that it's probably something like 8% higher than when your core body temperature is at its lowest. 
So it's no great surprise that most world records tend to be set in the early evening, which is around the optimal time for our bodies in terms of their strength and power performance. Although there are differences between people and there are lots of other intricacies that we can get into. One thing that's kind of interesting that uh, you mentioned from an evolutionary standpoint that I've always been very interested in has been the difference between like monophasic and polyphasic sleep cycles. So as, as we were evolving, I've read different things about whether or not people slept for an entire, let's say eight hour sleep cycle Mm -hmm. versus sleeping for short periods and then kind of napping throughout the day, just from like a practical standpoint because of potential predators and different threats and things like that. Um, Can you, can you touch on that at all? Yeah, of course I can. And I'll mention a couple of things. So one is that if you look at historical records, then there's often talk of, polyphasic sleep or biphasic sleep specifically Mm -hmm. people having a sleep during the daytime and then probably sleeping a little bit less during the overnight period than we currently sleep but that's not strong evidence of course and to address whether we are naturally biphasic sleepers perhaps the best models to answer this question are pre-industrial people such as hunter-gatherers and There are several groups around the world who have gone into some of these groups of people and looked at their sleep. And they've tended to find that hunter-gatherers and other pre-industrial people are opportunistic nappers, if you like. So in certain populations, such as the Hadza, you might find that these people nap now and then, whereas in other populations, I'm thinking of a study that was done in Madagascar specifically, people seem to nap slightly more frequently. And there are probably numerous factors that influence whether these people nap or not. And I think that one of these, and this is speculative, is environmental temperature. And if you think about evolution, then when the sun is at its highest, around midday, then we get the highest exposure to damaging radiation from the sun. So certain organisms have participated in a process that helps them escape from light, if you like. And it's probably no coincidence that we have that so-called post-lunch slump around the hottest time of day. And the reason for that is not that somebody ate too much turkey at lunchtime. The reason for that is that if you look at how sleep is regulated, then it's regulated by way of two processes. One is so-called sleep homeostasis. And the idea here is that our bodies like to get a certain amount of sleep. So the longer that we've been awake, the greater the pressure there is to sleep. But the other process is a circadian drive in wakefulness, which varies over the course of the day. So at the start of the day, after you've woken up, the drive to sleep is low because we paid off all the pressure to sleep from the previous day during the overnight sleep period. And for that reason, the drive to be awake can be low and we're still alert. But then as the day progresses, the greater the pressure there is to sleep and the greater the circadian drive there is to stay awake to counter that increase in pressure to sleep. But around lunchtime, there's a temporary drip dip in the drive to stay awake And that results in the so-called post-lunch slump because then all of a sudden we we become aware of this sleep pressure. So the point is that when it gets very hot 
I think we're probably more likely to capitalize on that post-lunch slump and want to nap. Hence the fact that in hotter European countries, a lot of people like to take a siesta in the afternoon, whereas in colder countries, that type of pattern is much less common. So I think biphasic sleeping is a perfectly natural way of sleeping, but monophasic sleeping, in which we sleep in a consolidated overnight block, is also perfectly natural. And it probably depends on where we are in the planet. And there are instances in which I don't think napping is a good idea, and we can touch on that later. But mm -hmm. slightly roundabout answer, but I don't know if that was in any way useful. No, that's great. That's that's really interesting. And I was familiar with some of those papers that you just kind of referenced slightly. And so that's kind of what made me ask actually in the first place, because it's something that I found to be pretty interesting. I, I've actually found that personally, I'm a lot more sensitive to some of these things, or I'm not sure if it's just my awareness is a little bit better now than it was before, or if it actually does have to do with my size. But uh, I weigh 265 now. And I used to be 300 and a long time ago, I was 165 when I first started lifting weights. And I've noticed that the bigger I get, the more sensitive I am to things like that. So for me, midday, when it's really hot out, I'm done. I'm just like, <laughs> I, I hit the couch and I just have to nap for like a good hour or something like that because it's way too hot. So <laughs> I'm going to start using this as an excuse and be like, it's science. I'm not lazy. Um, <laughs> So what sort of factors influence your, an individual's, let's say, sleep cycle or, or rhythm? Mm -hmm. So the most important of these is our patterns of exposure to light and dark, which is no great surprise based on what I said earlier. And specifically, we have specialized photoreceptive cells in our eyes that keep a track record of our patterns of exposure to light, and then they then relay this information back to a so-called master clock in the brain. And this master clock sits at the top of the hierarchy in the circadian system, which programs these roughly 24-hour changes in our body's biology. And this master clock then relays information about light exposure back to a gland named the pineal gland. And when it's dark outside, the pineal gland gets this darkness signal and then in response to that begins synthesizing a hormone named melatonin. And this is simplistic, but it illustrates the principles effectively. So this hormone then circulates throughout our bodies, acting on receptors and various tissues to inform them that it's dark outside and therefore to engage in nighttime activities. And this is an important point because whereas our eyes and our skin can directly sense what's going on outside, and our skin obviously is covered up by clothes, but the eyes in particular, cells in organs such as our kidneys and the liver can't necessarily tell what's going on outside. So they need these so-called internal time cues to inform them about what's going on. And the problem, of course, is that we now live in modern society in which we can switch on artificial lights when it's dark outside and disrupt those environmental cycles that are important to synchronizing our body's clock with the day outside. So light and dark are very important in synchronizing our circadian system with the day outside. And an important point here is that if you 
take an individual and you bring them down into a cave, for instance, in which they have no idea what time of day it is outside. They're not exposed to changing light dark cycles or fluctuating environmental temperature or change in food availability. Then their bodies will run free. And what you'll find is that the intrinsic period of their body's clocks isn't precisely 24 hours. It's typically slightly longer than 24 hours. And so if you checked in with them every 24 hours, their clocks would progressively drift away from a 24-hour period or away from alignment with the world outside. And so we need to reset our body's clocks each day, which is why it's important to give our body strong time cues, such as the light-dark cycle. But with that said, it seems that it's not only the light-dark cycle that synchronizes our body's clock with the world outside, and in the last few years, there's been an increasing focus on whether the timing of food availability and perhaps the composition of food availability influences the timing of various clocks throughout our bodies. And the first study that looked at this effectively was done in non-human animals, in rodents specifically. And what they found is that if you shift the timing of food availability then you can also shift the timing of gene expression in various different tissues in the animal's body. And specifically, whereas it seems that the master clock in the brain is set by the light-dark cycle, clocks outside of this, which are sometimes named peripheral clocks, seem to be more influenced by the timing of the eating-fasting cycle. And subsequent experiments in humans tend to support this, although the precise experiments that are needed to show this haven't necessarily been done. But the point of all this is that we need to give our bodies clear, sharp, distinct light-dark cycles each day, and we want to align our eating and fasting cycles with these light-dark cycles such that our biology is tightly synchronized with the world around us. And when this isn't the case, as for example, in shift work, all sorts of negative consequences tend to ensue both in terms of performance, but also perhaps more importantly in terms of health. Mm -hmm. So from the performance standpoint, I know that certain athletic qualities degrade at faster rates than others. Uh, can you give, sort of a breakdown of how that works and, and why we see a reduction in things like speed, reaction time versus strength tends to be a little bit more uh, persistent in before it actually sees like a significant degradation. Yeah. And what I'll say here is I don't think there have been lots of carefully controlled studies that have directly address this question, but I think that we can make some inferences based on the research that's been done so far. So regarding biomotor qualities that are probably of particular interest to the listeners, I think that strength endurance probably deteriorates faster than maximal strength does with prolonged wakefulness. And people tend to report higher RPE when they go a long time without sleep to complete a given task. But I think that this probably also depends in part on the complexity of the movement. So, for example, if somebody's doing isometric knee extensions, it's a really simple movement. 
there's no movement technically, but you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. Compare that, for example, to somebody doing a snatch, which is complex and it's explosive. You're training different strength quality, but let's say that both of them are maximal. My guess is that if you deprived somebody of sleep for a night and then you tested their maximum force production in an isometric knee extension, but you also tested their one rep max in the snatch, then that sleep loss is much more likely to degrade the performance in the snatch than it is in the knee extension. So generally the work so far has shown that strength endurance might degrade relatively quickly. And I think there's reason to think that multi-joint, more complex movements will be more negatively affected early on than more simple movements. But there are, of course, numerous different things that we could consider here. So you mentioned reaction time. Or you mentioned speed, and right. I, I thought of reaction time because there are different components of speed, but if you look at cognitive performance, for example, then we know something about how that is regulated by things like prolonged wakefulness. And then there are, of course, time of day change in performance in these different things. So I don't know if you want to go into some of those now. Yeah, feel free. So regarding... Exercise performance, I mentioned earlier that if you look at strength of power performance, that tends to be highest in the late biological afternoon. But interestingly, that does seem to be dependent on the individual that you look at. And if you look at somebody's performance from one day to the next at a given time of day, and you compare the variation in that performance to the variation over the course of a given day between when they're at their lowest physical capacity and when they're at the highest the variation within the day seems to be about three times greater than it is from one day to the next so it can be really quite large but interestingly when you group lots of people together you don't necessarily see a clear a clear day night change or change over the course of the day while the sun is up because Some people might experience their peak strength relatively early in the day and other people might experience it relatively late in the day. And that's likely modified by a few different factors. So one of those is chronotype, whether somebody is more of an early bird or a night owl. And unexpectedly, or perhaps expectedly, sorry, the early birds tend to perform relatively better early in the day and the night owls later in the day. But then the time at which you train will of course have some bearing on the time at which you are strongest and most powerful. So typically for most people, they're at the strongest in the late biological afternoon and you'll see them at their weakest around the time of day at which their core body temperature is lowest, which is typically shortly before waking in the morning. But if you then have that person go through a period of time in which they're training early in the day, then that difference over the course of the day will likely be dramatically flattened such that their peak performance might now be relatively early in the day. And so the implication is that if you're getting ready for a competition that takes place at a certain time of day, it makes a lot of sense to align your training time shortly ahead of the event at that time of day. There are a couple of other implications. So one is that if you're training at a suboptimal time of day in terms of your circadian biology, you'll likely benefit from a longer warm-up than you otherwise would have had because it seems that core body temperature is particularly important to performance in this type of exercise. 
But then another consideration is that if you can align your training with the best time of day in terms of your circadian variation in athletic performance, then you might increase the adaptations that you get to that type of exercise. There's a Finnish researcher named Keho Hikinen who's done a few different studies looking at this in recent years. And some of his work, although not all of it, has shown that if you do your strength training in the afternoon, then you might experience slightly greater adaptations than if you do it in the morning. And in those studies, he's tended to combine strength and endurance exercise. And typically what you see is that if people do the endurance exercise first, they get the greatest endurance improvements. If they do the strength exercise, they get the greater strength improvements. And if they do the strength exercise in the afternoon, they get the greater strength improvements. But if they do the endurance exercise or the morning or the afternoon in the morning or the afternoon, it's not so clear which one is optimal. So <clears throat> I don't know if any of that was helpful, but hopefully it's, it's given people a couple of ideas about how to align exercise training with time of day. But one thing that I will mention is that you need to consider other aspects of your lifestyle, of course. And for people who do very cognitively taxing jobs, it may be that even if the late biological afternoon is the best time for them to do strength training, then because they're arriving at the gym, having spent 10 hours in front of a computer doing something really hard and coping with various stresses over the course of the day, all of a sudden that mental fatigue influences their physical performance. And in that case, it, it may be that regardless of those circadian program changes in their strength, the changes in fatigue as a result of their job stresses override those changes. I'm not familiar with tons of research in this area. I have seen some papers, but the one that comes to my mind uh, was relatively recent. I think it was just a couple months ago. I can't remember the author, but they found a 300% increase in injury rates, or sorry, 300% reduction in injury rates um, through sleep extension in athletes. Now, that being said, their sample size was six. And so they... <laughs> it was a reduction of one injury, right? So it's not, it's, it's not anything to really write home about, but I, I, I think based on, based on what they actually did, it was interesting. And I do think that it's somewhat indicative of, you know, some potential concerns there um, and for, for lack of sleep. And then also potentially some interesting uh, potential for sleep extension. So, do you are, are you familiar with uh, much of the sleep extension research and, and can you give us a little bit of a an idea of what that looks like and how that could potentially influence athletes both from the standpoint of if you are looking to optimize athletic performance and then also from the standpoint of you know athletes typically being more likely to not get enough sleep on a regular basis yeah of course and there has actually been a systematic review of different sleep interventions to improve athletic performance and of those different interventions which include things like sleep hygiene education it seems that sleep extension has the strongest effects on performance and there have been all sorts of studies into this and sleep extension has been shown to improve everything from reaction time to mood to sprint times to accuracy in certain sporting skills so for example tennis serving has been studied both in the context of sleep loss 
and sleep extension to some parameters of swimming performance and also basketball. And the first study, to my knowledge, on sleep extension in athletes was done on basketball players. And Cherry Ma did the study nine years ago now. And what she found was that when athletes went through a six-week period in which they tried to get at least 10 hours in bed in total over the course of each 24-hour cycle, the players' reaction times fell. They ran a multi-directional sprint significantly faster and both their free throw and three-point field goal percentages improved by about nine percent and as i said since then it's been looked at in many other contexts and i think in in general it's likely that this type of sleep extension leads to improvements because most of us probably have some residual sleep pressure as a result of having not had sufficient sleep from one night to the next over a relatively long period of time, or having had intermittent sleep loss as a result of, for example, occasionally using an alarm. So among people who are healthy sleepers, going through a period of time in which they prolong their time in bed, which I would suggest you do by trying to sleep in in the morning, may benefit all these different markers of athletic performance and it may be particularly important at certain times so for example if you're going through a particularly strenuous training period then maybe sleep becomes relatively more important than it once was and of course the corollary of this is that when you change your exercise training you'll tend to influence your sleep too when people go through intensified training they tend to sleep slightly longer for instance and if you take inactive people and you put them on a structured exercise training program for the first time then numerous parameters of sleep health do improve so they'll fall asleep slightly faster they'll feel like they sleep slightly better and they'll sleep slightly longer but the difficulty as many people listening to this will know is that if you go through an overreaching phase then a lot of people experience a temporary reduction in their sleep quality and in particular, sleep tends to fragment during these times. So I think there's just an onus on doing what we can at those times to improve sleep health. And I'll give a couple of suggestions about how to go about this. So one of them is that during these times when you are sleeping in in the morning, there's going to be a tendency for your body clock to drift later. And I mentioned earlier that our patterns of light exposure are particularly important to synchronizing our body's clocks with the 24-hour day. Specifically, the biological time of day at which we're exposed to light will influence whether our body's clocks are shifted earlier or later. And if we expose ourselves to lots of high-intensity, short-wavelength light, which is the kind of light that you get outside on a sunny day, within a couple of hours of waking up, we'll tend to anchor our body's clocks relatively early in the day. So that will prevent sleep from drifting later at these times. So if you're extending your sleep, shortly after waking up, you do want to get outside and probably do some physical activity of some sort. So that's one tip. Another is that people will know that excessive caffeine consumption will influence sleep in various different ways. And it depends on the amount of caffeine you consume and the time of day at which you consume it. But Generally, when people consume too much caffeine too late in the day, they'll shift their body's clock slightly later as assessed through the timing of their melatonin rhythm, but also the intensity or the depth of their sleep will tend to decline 
and sleep will become more fragmented. So during these periods of sleep extension, I'd suggest that if possible, you temporarily abstain from consuming any caffeine. But if not, you probably cap your caffeine intake as early in your waking day as possible. And I generally suggest at least nine hours before bedtime. And of course, the more caffeine that you consume, the longer it will take your body to clear that caffeine. And the advantage of stopping early in the day is that you don't have as much time to consume it. So you probably won't consume eight coffees if you're only consuming caffeine before 8 a.m. in the morning. So I think limiting caffeine is another one. And then minimizing alcohol intake, of course, is another factor. And historically, a lot of people have regarded alcohol as a sleep aid. Having a nightcap is something that a lot of people have gravitated to. But while alcohol intake will lead people to fall asleep slightly faster and will increase the proportion of the early sleep period that they spend in the deeper stage of sleep, later in the sleep period, as the alcohol is cleared from the body, their sleep will tend to fragment and their sleep will be less restorative. So I think reducing alcohol intake during this time makes a lot of sense too. And then otherwise doing what you can to ensure that you get high quality sleep, which is dependent on various other sleep hygiene measures, which I'm sure you've covered on your podcast previously. And then finally, obviously, this almost goes without saying, during sleep extension, you'd want to avoid waking to an alarm in the morning. And if you go through a period of this, what you'll probably find is that initially you'll sleep longer than you otherwise would have been. But after a while, you probably will have paid off any residual sleep loss that you'd accumulated over time. And the amount of sleep you're getting will stabilize at a shorter duration than what you were first getting during the sleep extension period. As far as individual chronotypes go, how much variability and how much, I guess, how much plasticity is involved in, let's say, if I'm more of a morning person or morning chronotype, how malleable is that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think that it probably depends relatively heavily on a person's genetics. There are rare instances of people having so-called advanced sleep phase syndrome or delayed sleep phase syndrome. And we now understand something about the genetic bases of some of these sleep phenotypes. However, with that said, those are the minority of people. And typically what you find is that in free living environments in which people just self-select their bedtimes and they choose when they switch on the light at night and when they eat and when they train and so on, there's very large variation from one person to the next, even at a given age within a biological sex in their preferred sleep wake times. However, if you then have people go into an environment in which they're exposed to the same light dark cycles in particular, and similar meal times and whatnot, then within a relatively short period of time, you'll find that the variation from one person to the next becomes substantially smaller. And specifically, what you tend to see is that the late chronotypes will shift their sleep timing substantially earlier. And this has been possibly best shown by some camping experiments in which people go into the mountains and they're not exposed to any artificial light and within three days or so, you find that the latest chronotypes will 
advance their sleep timing by several hours. And by the end of a few days of camping, pretty much everyone's going to bed at a very similar time and waking up at a very similar time. Hmm. That, that's interesting. So why, why would the later chronotypes come down? Why would the earlier chronotypes kind of come up in terms of shifting their sleep cycles? It tends to be that early chronotypes are already quite closely aligned with the natural light-dark cycle. And I say this and obviously recognize that right, okay. at, at high latitudes, there can be very extreme light-dark cycles. You know, you go to the poles and in the summer, you've got eternal sunlight and then in the winter, it's always dark. So if we put that to the side for a second, then in most parts of the world, so take people at the equator, for instance, the, chronotype, the early chronotypes would be relatively tightly aligned with the light-dark cycle such that they wake up around sunrise and they go to bed not that long after sunset. However, the people who are late chronotypes tend to be less well aligned with the light-dark cycle. and Much of the time, that's probably because their lifestyles aren't quite as healthy, being perfectly honest. So if they're consuming lots of caffeine... And if they're switching their lights on late at night and if they're training very late in the day and if they're using lots of devices too late at night, they're watching TV and they're reading the news and playing video games, all those different things can shift their clocks later. So when you then have them go into these conditions in which they're exposed to stronger time cues, you will better synchronize their clocks with the light-dark cycle. As I said, that's not always the case because there are these people who do genetically have very late chronotypes, but for the most part, that seems to be the case. And there have been a couple of instances of researchers intervening to shift late chronotypes, biological rhythms earlier. So specifically, Elise Facer Childs, who has done some work with the universities of Birmingham and Surrey published a paper not too long ago, looking at a lifestyle intervention to advance biological rhythms in late chronotypes. And she found that quite quickly she was able to shift these people a couple of hours earlier. And these people performed substantially better in the morning afterwards and their mood was better during these hours too. So it seems that for the most part, when you take late chronotypes and you put them into healthier environments, they'll tend to shift earlier. Whereas the early birds, they're probably already having relatively healthy lifestyles. So essentially you're saying that the early chronotypes are better than the rest of us scumbags. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm certainly not saying that. Um, <laughs> and, and, and what I will say is that it's, it's probably it, adaptive to have some mm. variation in chronotype two right so specifically there's this idea of the sentinel hypothesis which basically posits that it would have been advantageous to have somebody in the camp awake at a given moment in the context of a natural living environment because if mm. there was a threat from a pet predator then having somebody up round the clock would help protect against those threats and David Sampson published a very cool study on this a few years ago in which he looked mm -hmm. at the Hadza and found that over the course of several weeks of monitoring, there was a vanishingly short period 
in which the entire group of people being studied were asleep. Almost always it was the case that somebody was up. So there is an advantage to having this variation in chronotype, but I think much of that is just driven by how old people are. Right. People listening will know that adolescence and particularly adolescents who are right around the time at which they reach physical maturity at their latest in terms of how their sleep changes over the lifespan. We're born, we're very early chronotypes as kids. Over the course of development, we get later and later until physical maturity when we're at our latest. And then from then, basically until the grave, we get progressively earlier. So in the context of these free living people, the people who are up very late were probably just generally the young people. Whereas the, the people who were up early in the morning when the adolescents were sleeping would have been some of the older people and, and the little ones too. So one of the things I know a lot of people are really interested in is body composition and mm. specifically being able to, you know, preserve as much muscle mass while cutting or being able to minimize the amount of fat accretion if, if they're trying to gain weight. Um, even for competitive athletes trying to meet a certain weight class. And so how does sleep factor into, you know, hormonal regulation and, and things like nutrient partitioning for, for different tissues. And you even mentioned gene expression before, uh, how does all of that stuff relate to, to sleep cycles? So I'll start with the studies that have directly looked at the effects of changes in the opportunity to sleep on changes in body composition because i think these are the most illuminating and one of the early ones on this was done by arlette ned who's at the university of chicago and she took a group of overweight middle-aged adults and they're going through a fat loss diet for a couple of weeks and they were divided into two groups so in one group they only had five and a half hours in bed each night and in the other group, they had eight and a half hours in bed each night. And what she found was that when people didn't get enough time in bed, they lost a substantially greater proportion of muscle mass than when they did get enough time in bed. And unsurprisingly, she found that when people had the restricted sleep, there was also a shift in substrate utilization towards oxidizing less fat for energy. And these people also had increased hunger and ghrelin. So if we consider that they were consuming standardized diets, then in free living conditions, it's likely that the people who were in the sleep restricted condition, they would have consumed more and found it much harder to stick to the diet given their higher hunger. And since then, Sean Youngster published a very nice paper on this a couple of years ago, which was quite similar to that early paper, looking at overweight and obese adults. And they divided people into calorie restriction alone or calorie restriction plus sleep loss, but only on five nights each week. The reason being that for a lot of people, they will restrict their sleep from Sunday night until Thursday night during the working week, and then they'll try and catch up on sleep on the weekend. So they were trying to improve the ecological validity of this particular study and right. they found the same type of results. So again, the proportion of mass lost as fat was greater in the condition in which they were allowed to get enough sleep. And 
interestingly also found that leptin was higher in the group that got enough sleep which should be conducive to things like energy expenditure but also retaining healthy levels of sex hormones and thyroid hormones and so on so with that said and perhaps most relevant to the listeners there has been some work recently looking at the effects of a sleep health intervention on responses to standardized training program and this was done by Paul Yabek I don't know if I'm butchering his surname I probably am but basically what they did was they taught some untrained people about how to sleep better and they only did this for half the people in the study and they then had people go through a training program for several weeks and what they found was that in the group that had guidance about sleep the people probably gained marginally more fat free mass but they certainly lost substantially more fat fat mass so overall their body composition was a lot better after the training intervention so these studies show that when you when you hold things like nutrition relatively constant simple changes in sleep opportunity and sleep health will influence body composition and we know quite a lot about the the bases of some of these changes so for example if we think about sleep loss then of course less sleep means more time to eat so there's probably an effect of that then we know something about the endocrine consequences of poor sleep so specifically it seems that when people don't get enough sleep you may see an increase in ghrelin which is a hormone that's produced by the stomach which tends to stimulate appetite you may see reductions in leptin but to be honest i think those data are all over the place and the more likely reason for some of those changes is changes in food reward and specifically when people don't get enough sleep you tend to see an increase in hedonic stimulus processing in the brain which contributes to the drive to consume foods and in particular it seems that activation in the insular cortex and some of the regions that are thought to be involved in hedonic functions so the orbitofrontal cortex and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex have the strongest activation when people are shown unhealthy food or presented unhealthy food when they don't get enough sleep so i think the brain is a really important driver of some of the contributors to the negative effects of poor sleep on body composition and i think that that probably summarizes much of it but people will also be interested in nutrient partitioning and probably sex hormones too as you alluded to so when people don't get enough sleep we've known for a couple of decades now that their blood sugar regulation will be substantially worse relatively quickly and within a few days of sleep restriction otherwise healthy people will often become pre-diabetic and regarding sex hormones there's been some work looking at the effects of sleep loss on testosterone synthesis in men and while the data are a bit mixed it seems that people who are perhaps more vulnerable to being hypogonadal so not synthesizing much testosterone may be more negatively affected by insufficient sleep so there's been some work published recently showing that 
old men in particular will experience reductions in testosterone when they don't get enough sleep for a few nights. Whereas young men might not be quite so negatively affected. But I know myself that I experienced quite low testosterone in my early 20s at a time at which I was really stressed and I was drinking way too much alcohol and I was spending a lot of time going out and exercising loads and probably not eating enough either. And after making some changes, including perhaps most importantly, significantly improving my sleep, within a few years, my testosterone was nearly three times what it was in my early 20s. So I, I know firsthand oh, wow. and have seen this with other people that improving sleep health definitely can have some substantial effects on sex hormones too. Yeah, I knew that it was dramatic. Three times is is really dramatic. So <laughs> that's yeah, wild. I'm not I'm, I'm not <laughs> promising that. And, and of course, I made other lifestyle changes too. But. Yeah, no, of course, that's awesome. So, uh, can can you just really quickly clarify what sleep opportunity means within the context of, of researchers yeah. and how they're using that? Sure. So when I say sleep opportunity, what I mean is time in bed, because. If you give somebody six hours in bed, they have a six hour sleep opportunity, if that makes sense. And, and one thing I'll add here is that we've focused so far on changes in time in bed and sleep opportunity, but how long we have to sleep is just one dimension of sleep health. And there are lots of different dimensions. So you've got sleep duration, but then you also have sleep quality, which is much trickier to measure because it includes both subjective perceptions of how well you feel you sleep, but as well as some more objective markers. So how long it takes you to fall asleep, sleep latency, and how efficiently you sleep. So the portion of time in bed that you're actually asleep. And then maybe some other architectural features of somebody's polysomnogram which is something you'd only determine in a lab and isn't so relevant to the listeners. Mm. But then there's sleep timing. So we've spoken a little bit about chronotype and in general, people who are later chronotypes will tend to have poorer health than people who are earlier chronotypes. That is a very general statement, but I think that that's defensible. And sleep timing is particularly important relative to the individual. So if you, Daniel, try to sleep at, a very unusual time for you just find it hard to sleep so think for example of going and doing a night shift tonight and then finishing the night shift around the time at which you would naturally wake up in the morning and then going home and trying to get sleep and let's say that you have the same sleep opportunity that you would otherwise have and let's say that you normally have an eight hour sleep opportunity so if you woke up at 6 a.m naturally and you arrive home from your night shift at 7 a.m and you then are able to sleep until 3 p.m., which is your normal sleep opportunity, you're probably not going to get that much high-quality sleep during that time. So sleep timing is important too, and sleep variability is very important. And specifically, when you look at any of these dimensions of sleep health, what you tend to find is that people who have insufficient sleep or people who sleep at suboptimal times for themselves or people who have more variable sleep people who report poorer sleep quality will tend to be disposed to developing various different health problems and also at greater risk of dying from any cause. So they'll also have higher all-cause mortality than the otherwise healthy people who have more regular sleep and longer sleep opportunities and high quality sleep. 
what's one opinion or kind of position that you have that somewhat goes against the grain either of research or sort of common practice nowadays could be about training nutrition anything really it's a it's a really good question it's not a question that i've been asked before (laughs) what i (laughs) what i might go with is that and I've, I've mentioned this on podcast before, but just since it's at the forefront of my mind, I think that creatine is probably really useful during insufficient sleep. So a lot of people will gravitate to caffeine when their sleep is poor. And there's, there's been a little bit of work looking at the effects of consuming relatively high doses of creatine to counter insufficient sleep. And this has been looked at in the context of athletic performance so christian cook looked at the influence of creatine monohydrate consumption on skill in a test of rugby performance so it's a passing test it's also been looked at in relation to cognitive performance and these studies have tended to find that when people consume creatine monohydrate after sleep loss their motor skills will be better than they otherwise would have been and they'll also have slightly better mood and some measures of executive function may be a little sharper than if they didn't consume the creatine. And it's also been consumed directly. It's also been compared directly to caffeine in some of these studies. And whereas caffeine tends to have some negative effects on things like stress hormones and sleep the following evening, that hasn't really been shown for creatine. So I see creatine as being a really useful alternative to caffeine during times at which people aren't sleeping as well as they would like to sleep. But unlike caffeine, I think that if people consume high dose of creatine, they'll probably experience an array of different benefits in terms of their adaptations to training, but also perhaps their cognitive function and some measures of cardiometabolic health too. Mm -hmm. So I I think if people reached for their creapure, micronized creatine instead of high quantities of coffee and tea in the morning when they weren't getting enough sleep, then probably will be a bit better off. That's really interesting. So what are some of the proposed mechanisms for why that's the case? So it seems to relate to how sleep is regulated. And I mentioned earlier that sleep regulation involves the interaction of two different processes. And one of them is sleep homeostasis. The longer you've been awake, the greater the pressure there is to sleep. And one of the main correlates of sleep homeostasis is the accumulation of adenosine in the brain. And if you consume creatine, then you boost phosphocreatine stores, but not only in skeletal muscle, also in the brain. So if you have more phosphocreatine in the brain, then you can resynthesize ATP faster, ATP, of course, containing three different phosphates, as a result of those higher creatine phosphate stores. So you can counter the accumulation in adenosine and ADP over the course of the day. So there's therefore less pressure to sleep than there otherwise would have been. And there was a really interesting study published by Marcus Dvorak a few years ago that looked at the effects of adding creatine monohydrates to the chow of rats over several weeks. And he showed that when you do so, the rats tend to sleep slightly less and have slightly less deep sleep too. And the reason, of course, relates to the accumulation of adenosine in the brain. But the really interesting thing is that 
if the rats are sleeping less and have less deep sleep, then a lot of people would assume that they're going to be less healthy and perform worse than they otherwise would. But as hundreds of studies have now shown, when people regularly consume creatine, they experience all sorts of improvements. And most relevant to the listeners, creatine tends to accelerate the rate at which people gain muscle and strength in response to resistance training. So if creatine does affect sleep, then it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to have knock-on effects on their performance. And if anything, the effects on performance and health seem to be the opposite of what you would expect. So I think during these times in which people aren't sleeping well, which most of us will face from time to time, I think some sleep loss is inevitable. And if you're starting a new business, for instance, then maybe you just feel that there aren't enough hours in the day. And I'm experiencing this at the moment. And during those times, I think taking something like 0.1 grams of creatine per kilogram of body mass. So if you're 100 kilos or 220 pounds, consuming 10 grams of micronized creatine monohydrate with your first meal of the day is a, is a really good way to go. That's really interesting. I wasn't aware of the, the relationship between sleep deprivation and, and creatine acting as kind of like a buffer for performance and, and cognition. That's really cool. Yeah, and again, that hasn't really been shown by many different studies in humans, but I would love it if somebody did a study mm -hmm. of high dose creatine supplementation and its effects on sleep architecture and also its effects on responses to sleep loss over a period of several weeks of supplementation. Because my, my guess is yeah. that it would, it would be quite strongly protective. And I think creatine is also one of those things. And this is the case for many so-called nootropics. But I think that for a lot of these things, they're likely to be most beneficial when people are really under the cosh. So if you, if you give somebody some mildly distressing stimulus or a relatively hard task, then maybe you don't find that these things have a measurable effect on performance. But if you have somebody do something which is really hard, and in this case, if you have them do a testing cognitive test battery after prolonged sleep loss, that's, that's really hard. I think you're much more likely to find that something will actually affect performance. So if you think of the ultra endurance athletes of the world who are trying to minimize how much sleep they get, or if you think of special forces who are undergoing prolonged operations and extended wakefulness, I think creatine should be their first port of call. Apart from the fact that for the most part, they <laughs> probably reach for some illicit stimulants to keep them up and sharp <laughs> during those times. Yeah, that's awesome. So where can the listeners find you? They can find me on social media at Greg Potter PhD. And I'm most active on Instagram now. I don't spend a massive amount of time on social media, but if you do reach out on there, then I will get back to you. I also have a website, gregpotterphd.com, which desperately needs updating. And then if you're in the UK, then I'd say check out resilientnutrition.com. And right now we're only selling products in the UK, but over time we will branch out elsewhere, moving into Europe and then ultimately, hopefully, North America too, but watch the space. That's really exciting. And are you working on any projects at the moment? Resilient nutrition or in general? Just in general. Yeah, so I, 
I help individuals with their health and performance a bit. So specifically right now, I have a few clients who I help with their sleep. But then the resilient nutrition work is occupying most of my time right now especially given that it's a relatively young startup. Mm -hmm. So I'm working very long hours, hence the fact that I don't feel like I've made nearly as much sense today as I normally do. <laughs> <laughs> but then also I, I do a little bit of consultancy work for, for a couple of companies. And I also work with several athletes. And historically I've worked mostly with strength of power athletes, but right now, because of my work for Resilient Nutrition, I help out several of our athletes with their nutrition. So, for example, we've got a lady who is sailing around the world in November single-handedly. We are working with a guy who's shortly going to be running from England to Cappadocia in Turkey as quickly as possible. And I'm getting a guy ready for an Ironman in the space for 100 days. And then in a few days' time, we also have a lady who's running from the northernmost point in Scotland to the southernmost point in England. So I guess all of a sudden I've, I've become a performance nutritionist for some ultra endurance athletes too, but <laughs> it's all really interesting and it's really fun. And, and it's great because I get the chance to put a lot of the things that we've dis discussed to the, today to the test. And I think that that right. process of working people actually really helps you work out what works and what doesn't in the real world and sometimes there's a discordance between what looks good on paper and what's actually doable yeah no i couldn't agree more so all of those links are going to be uh, linked up in the show notes guys definitely check them out give them a follow check out both websites uh, greg's been doing some really amazing stuff fully endorse what he's doing um so greg thanks so much for joining on i really appreciate you taking the time i took a bunch of notes here so there's a lot of different uh, things that i'm going to be doing a little bit of digging on as well myself. So it was great to have you on. Pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode and took a lot from it that you can apply to your own situation to see much better results. I just have one quick personal favor to ask of you. Please make sure you subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on whatever podcast platform you're using. When you do this, it helps me get better at producing content and increases my exposure so I can continue putting out high-quality information for you guys. Next, I want to extend a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Stacked Strength. I'll help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to connect with me directly, so make sure you head on over and jump into my DMs. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.